We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. And before I read, allow me to do a little bit of explaining to you. Chapter 12 starts off with a therefore. Now, when a therefore is in the Bible, it's referring to everything that was before. And what it's referring to is the faith chapter in the Bible, which is um, Hebrews chapter 11. It goes through men and women of faith that God wanted to draw your attention to. Now, we've read that many times in here, and because of time, I won't read you all of chapter 11. But if you've never read chapter 11, it's a wonderful read. And maybe put it down for reading this week, if you could. But we have a therefore. After we cover all these heralds of the faith, then Paul goes on to write, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggles against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son and says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endured hardships is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not a legitimate true son and daughter of all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us when we and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and, and life? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths at your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. It's, it's tough teaching. Not, not everybody wants to hear. And if you're a visitor today, you better get ready for a little bit of meat and potatoes type preaching. There's not a lot of fluff here. And we don't do fluff very well. See, tomorrow is the first day of the new year, 2024. Everybody ready for it? I'm actually kind of dreading the new year. It's going to be very challenging. So much is going to happen in it. But many of us who lived in Western cultures take it for granted that the new year always begins on January 1st. But that's not true. Ancient Babylonians and Romans celebrated their New Year's in March. The Chinese celebrate there somewhere, because it changes every year, between January 21st and February 21st. And they party for 15 days. 
Ethiopians do theirs in September. Muslims do their New Year's in November. And in some areas of Scotland, just because I'm Scottish and I got to throw this out, they actually roll burning barrels of tar through the city streets. That's their tradition. Never said they were smart, but that's what they do. <laughs> and then there are the Thai people, the Thai people who celebrate. And do you know how they observe the coming New Year with, in Thailand, they throw water on everybody because, believe it or not, they throw water. They use garden hoses. They use buckets of water. They use squirt guns. And everybody washes down everything. Homes, people, dogs, streets. Even the motorbikes get squeaky clean in Thailand for their New Year's. But perhaps the most important New Year celebration ever and it, it was held in the Old Testament. It's actually held this, in this current time. It's in the month of September. And it was the Jewish people. They began their Feast of Trumpets, and it ultimately culminated in the rejoicing on the Day of Atonement. Now, the Jews called this New Year's celebration Rosh Hashanah. And they welcome the new year with a shofar. When I was in Israel with Christians United for Israel, right, I really thought about buying a shofar. A tourist one sells from 60 to 250 shekels. A bit of trivia for you, shekels three to one per dollar right now, so it's, you know, not that much. But I never saw a non-tourist one. And they are for sale on many sites. You can go to the web and buy them, right? They go from 250 shekels to 1,400 shekels. With that kind of money, you'd think they'd come with a couple lessons how to use them. But they don't. Although there, is, there are lessons on the internet if you want to learn how to blow a shofar. A shofar is made from a ram's horn that is soaked and heated to somewhat straighten it out. If you straighten it all the way out, it doesn't sound right. In the Jewish culture, rab the, the rabbis have made several observations about the, ho the horn's role in Rosh Hashanah. They say they blow it, they blow the shofar at Rosh Hashanah as a way of signifying the need of the folks for repentance. And they say that the curve of the horn reflects the posture of a person as he bows before God. Now, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which is a 10-day festival, I mean parties for 10 days, they read the story of Abraham about to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. But God intercedes by supplying a ram. Now, you can read that if you wish to read that this week. It's in Genesis chapter 22. It's a wonderful read. But the rabbis seem to believe that the ram's horn reminds one of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice that which was most precious to him. Rabbis actually teach and even teach to, that these are the reasons that use the ram horn. The need of repentance, the reflection of a repentant man, and, and the significance of the ram's horn in the Abraham's story. And why? See, that's what the, 
the rabbis teach that is why the ram's horn is used and throughout Israel's history. Well, now let's, let's stretch here a second. Oddly enough, God never used the shofar in that way. Now, now their teachings are absolutely not wrong and necessarily wrong. The thoughts of the rabbis are great thoughts and they make great sermons. But it's just that God really had a much more powerful message for the shofar. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, we find Moses has led the people of Israel to Mount Sinai, where God gave them his laws. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet of the shofar blast, and all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on there, and it was on fire. The whole top of the mountain was on fire. The smoke went up like the smoke out of a kiln. And the whole mountain was trembling terribly. The Bible records this. And the sound of the trumpet, the shofar, grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Now, if you wish to read that for yourself, that's Exodus chapter 19. I think it starts in verse 16, and it goes through 19. I'm really close on that. Now, who's playing the trumpet, the shofar? The Bible doesn't say. But it's fairly obvious. It's not being blown by human lips. And I'm pretty sure the shofar was being blown by an angel. And the horn is not a pretty sound. It's not a pretty sound. It's, it's, it's actually kind of scary. Any of you ever heard of shofar? They're scary. And especially if you've got a bad person playing it. Oh, they're scary. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19 tells us that when all the people saw the thunder and the flashings and the lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak for us. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It was such a scary experience. The people were trembling and pleading with Moses not to have to listen to God. The writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 18 through 21, reflects on that day and tells us as Christians, we have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom of tempest. We haven't come to that. And to the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the words that made the hearers beg for no further messages be spoken to them. Indeed, it was so terrifying that Moses said, I trembled with fear. So what's going on here? Why use the trumpet, the shofar, in this way? Now, here's my guess. Here's my thought, right? 
the shofar was God's way of, it's God's trumpet of power. You see, God had just freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of their captivity and now brought them here to mount the mountain to receive the laws, his laws. Now, were these laws optional? Did they get to vote on them? Did they get to decide, I like this one, but I don't like that one? No. In fact, this whole light and sound show at the mountain were God's way of declaring, I am God and you are not. Our world needs to listen to that once in a while today, don't you think? If you decide to be my people, I will be your leader, and these commandments are mandatory. Nowhere in there do they say they're optional. The shofar that day was God's way of announcing, your king has come. And at, at Mount Sinai, God used the shofar to call his people to stand up and recognize that he is their king. The, the sound of the shofar declared that their God was powerful, fearsome, worthy of obedience. The Jews to this day herald their new year with the shofar. In the Old Testament, this was called the Feast of Trumpets. And they blew shofars and silver trumpets every day for 10 days, day after day. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Trumpets was the beginning of their new year. And when they blew their horns, they weren't just blowing the trumpets as they were some kind of noise maker. Remember, the shofar was used in scripture to point to God and his power. Well, I guess what took place right after, no, I'm gonna let you guess here. Think about it. So for, what, what could possibly take place right after the Feast of Trumpets? Anybody remember your Old Testament? That, well, for you who don't, I'm gonna give you, that's right, the Day of Atonement. You had a 10-day festival, then you go to the Day of Atonement. This was the day each year when God forgave the sins of the people. Now, God would do that regularly throughout the year when people brought their sacrifices to the temple and they, were, they covered that sin, but this was a special day. On this day, the Day of Atonement, God had his high priest offer a special sacrifice for the sins of the nation and then another sacrifice for his own sins. The slate was wiped clean every year on the Day of Atonement. It's the day of starting over. It's the day when God forgave the sins of the nation, starting over. It's kind of like our New Year's festivals. And the sins were forgiven because God made it happen. It wasn't about the people's righteousness or their good deeds. It was because God was willing to forgive all their sins. It says in Psalms 
103, verse 8. And I think it's, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And it goes on. For as far as the east is from the west, so far removed is our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on all who fear him. You know what the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets was all about? They were announcing this important event in Israel's history. The day God forgave sins. That's why he had 10 days of building up to it. It's a one time, it's a time of great rejoicing. In the same way, Jesus said, there's great rejoicing in heaven when one sinner is saved. I tell you, he says, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner who repents over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Those words of Jesus are found in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. It's almost as if the chauffeur sounds in the distance every time a sinner believes, repents, and confesses Jesus as Lord. Now, you may not have already thought of this yourself, but there is one more time that the trumpet is blown in Scripture, and all will hear it. Do you know when that trumpet is blown? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Check it out. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment and a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise imperishable, and we shall be changed at the last shofar declaring that the second coming of Christ. It's all about Jesus coming back for us. It's all about him coming in power and might. The first time he came on a, on a gentle donkey, this time he's riding a war horse. And at the beginning of this new year, I want you to remember that the shofar tells us, and let's see, I'm going to word this. It, it isn't about us. Let's word it that way. The shofar tells us it isn't about us. Let's word it that way. It's about God and his power and his might and his mercy and what he can do in our lives. The new year is a time to decide, is it about God? Do you want fluff or do you want meat and potatoes? Now, I have a suggestion for this New Year's resolution, and I love giving a suggestion, but I need it too, that we ought to be able to remember 
It's kind of a broad, general suggestion. Let's promise ourselves and God that we will make a change for the better. The best resolution I can give you. See, in 2024, God's people, as God's people, let's word it that way. Let's make this one simple resolution. We're going to make a change for the better. And to help us to do that, I'm going to suggest a few ways we can make it better. First of all, each of us can make a change for the better by developing a better attitude towards life. Part of life is life and part of life is attitude. Now, I'm going to read you Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. So bear with me while I get you there. Not that I've already obtained all of this, nor have I arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. At this time, when he wrote these words, he was chained to a Roman guard under horrible conditions in the, in the cellar. And despite that, he writes these words. And then ask yourself, what was Paul's goal? What's he? He's going on to a goal. He answered that in verses 10 and 11, if you want to read them later. How long to know Christ and power shown by his resurrection? How I long to know Christ's power. How I long to share in his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that I may perhaps attain, as he did, the resurrection from the dead. So what was Paul's goal? His goal was the resurrection from the dead. Getting to go to heaven. Getting to walk the pearly streets. His goal was eternity with Jesus Christ. And that's what he strove for every day. His goal was heaven. So here's the point. If our goal is heaven, then all these setbacks are but stepping stones. Anybody had setbacks this year? Okay, how many people are fibbing right now? How many had setbacks this year? Okay, some of you still haven't figured out. I'm not going to embarrass you. We've all had them. It's getting us closer to a time when we will be with him. There are trials and disappointments. But every day that passes is one day closer when we get to be with Jesus. And that's our goal. I, I, let me quote Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Even what you can't see is good. Any of you had a struggle? We've all had them. Any of you had a tear? We've all had them. Some of us will admit to them. Our problem is we can't see the outcome. 
The world says the way to get to feel good about yourself is to climb the ladder of success by making lots of money and making influential friends and belonging to the right circles. Those are the things that the world says makes you feel good about yourself. But the Bible teaches that we should feel good about ourselves because God loves us. You are such a treasured person in God's sight that he gave his only begotten son for you. It makes you valuable. And you can feel good about yourself. Now, it is no wonder that some of our young people today have a very poor self-image. They go to school and read books that tells them that they're products of blind chance. That they're just accidents of nature, unplanned, unloved, and unwanted. Yet the Bible tells us and teaches us that we are wanted and loved and cared for by God himself. We're to be a fruitful part of the family of God, his church. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells Timothy, God's family is the church of the living God. Now you can read those words for yourself in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. God's family is the church of the living God. And again then, Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, you are members of God's very own family, citizens of God's country, and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. Now that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible does not speak of solitary saints. Sorry, you guys on the internet, but it does not speak of solitary saints or spiritual hermits isolated from other believers. In God's family, we are connected to every other believer. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says, In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. As Christian, the Bible says that we are put together, joined together, built together, members together, heirs together, fitted together, held together, and also that we will be caught up in the air together. The Bible calls the church, the body of Christ. And Paul, being a member of the church, to him it meant being a part, a vital organ of a living body, a body of Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as part of his body. But a chopped off finger or a chopped off toe won't amount to much, would we? Am I making sense about that? 
If you're not attached, you're not going to amount to much. If an organ is severed from the body, it shrivels up and dies. Unless you have a really good doctor, right? They can put things back on sometimes. It's, but if they, you don't have that doctor, it's cut off and disconnected. Actually cut off from the life of the local church. The spiritual life of most people will wither and die and cease to exist if they get cut off from the church. And that's why the first symptom of, of a spiritual decline in a person is usually inconsistent attendance at worship services with others gathered believers. Maybe I should say that again. The first symptom of decline is usually inconsistent attendance at worship services with other believers and gathering believers. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir right now, so just bear with me. That's your first sign. Whenever we become careless about fellowship, everything else spiritual seems to slide too. That's just the truth. A Christian without a church home is like an organ without a body, a sheep without a flock, a child without a family. It's an unnatural state. Membership in the family of God is neither unimportant or something to be casually ignored. Jesus said, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Little rabbit trail here now. It does not say there won't be falling away and people going away. And some yes, there are some churches that have done that. But if you stay true to God's holy word, you won't. Hell can't conquer the door. Just a bit of sidebar here. How am I going to word this? Make sense. Jesus said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now that is Matthew 16, 18, if you want to check it out. The person who says, now I'm going to step on some toes, but I don't care. The person who says, I don't need the church is either arrogant or ignorant. That's just a fact. I'm sorry. It's just how it, it comes out of my mouth. The church itself is so significant that Jesus died on the cross for it. In fact, the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. So, you want to have a better 2024? Then become more active in the church. If you're a visitor, become more active in your home church. When Jesus loved the church, he gave his life for it. So what should you do? Realize too, if you want to have a better 2024 than as a Christian, it's not good, and good enough for us to just lift our voices and praise and prayer to God above. As Christians, we must display a more patient and loving spirit towards others. I know, I just said one of the hardest things in the world to do. Sidebar here, have you ever had anybody you just wanted to grab by the lapel and 
slap a little knowledge in their head? Don't do it. It gets you in court. Have you ever just wanted to take somebody and shake them? That might be okay in court. I don't think it would be, but our problem is we know the truth. As Christians, we must display a more patient and loving spirit towards others. One country preacher wrote, and I don't remember his name, I apologize, but I give him credit. It would amaze us how many people we could influence for Christ if we would just treat people nicely. I think he was right. This is a hard world, and it doesn't always exercise courtesy. Woe be it, I opened up the door, I was going in the clinic at the hospital, sidebar here. I got my head handed to me because I opened up the door for a person. They told me they were more than capable. And I'm like, okay, it was icy. I was being nice. The door was heavy. I was told off in four-letter language. That was, I, I was, I was actually shocked. I mean, I thought I was doing something good. It's icy. You know, doors are hard. I was patient. I didn't have a come to Jesus moment with them. Sometimes it's a dog eat dog world. Getting back to sermon. I got to get back to sermon. We got to get you home someday. People are jockeying for positions in the highways and the byways of their companies. They are filled with all kinds of stress and anxiety. And the church must be a place where they can come and be accepted and loved and encouraged and built up. We have to remember, sidebar, there's sometimes they're babies Christian and mature Christians. And you don't get after a baby Christian because they're still on milk. Does that make sense? Was the, I hope that made sense because that's the nicest way I know to say it. We have to be a place that's welcoming and, and where we can help carry other people's burdens, like mailing cards to people in the hospital. You see, if we treat each other with love, then wonderful things happen in the kingdom of God. So this year, let's make sure we display a more patient and loving attitude towards others. Maybe more, that maybe this should be more than any of our other New Year's resolutions. Now this one here is going to be tough. This is really, really tough. Tough, 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 tough. I'm going to develop a better attitude towards life. I'm going to be more fruitful, part of the God's family and His church. And I'm really going to be more patient and loving spirit towards others. Ah, that's hard. Now, this is a picture of Bill and Dorothy, Gloria Gaither. Any of you know them, right? See, now, they've written many wonderful Christian songs. And one was written in the late 60s, when Gloria was expecting a child. And at that time, the, Gla the Gaithers were going through some very difficult times. Bill was recovering from a serious illness. Gloria was pregnant and experiencing prenatal difficulties. And there were those who were criticizing them, saying their music was not spiritual enough. They actually got hate mail. 
Then on New Year's Eve, Gloria was sitting in a dark room and she wasn't well, the, the prenatal. Was, and the, she had a feeling, the grip of depression about her and fear. And she said, and if you read her book, she said, I sat all alone in the darkness thinking about what was happening in the world and our own problems and about the baby yet unborn. And I was thinking, who in their right mind would bring a child into a world like this? As she was feeling almost overwhelmed with fear, she wrote, of what the future might hold. Something happened. I can't quite explain it, she wrote. But the next moment, I was released from it all. The panic that had built up inside me gently just dispelled by the reassurance presence and a soft voice that kept saying to me, don't forget about the empty tomb. Suddenly, I knew I could have my baby, she wrote, and the face of the future with optimism and trust, for I had been reminded it's worth it all because he lives. And that's when she began writing the words, which is now the second verse of Because He Lives. Now, here's a hymn. That's what she used to look like, and that's the other Gaither, right? And she got a little older, right? But she wrote, how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater is still calm assurance that this child can face uncertain days because he lives. May I remind you that we are a year closer to heaven than they were this time last year. Everything's on course, folks. We need to trust the Lord and love, love him and give him a place in our lives and we need to be his hands to allow him to work through us. Now, I have opinions. You have opinions. Even Jeremiah has opinions. Right, Jeremiah? We know how it should be, or we think we know how it should be. The problem is, we're not God sitting on the throne. And sometimes we, the church, we, his children, we, his sheep, have to go through tough times to accomplish the person. How would you have liked to have been a Jew for 400 years when God pulled his voice totally out of the nation of Israel? 400 years, we haven't been around that long. He just said, no, I'm not talking to you because you aren't worthy. Yes, he still talked to the ones who talked to him, but he pulled his blessing, his favor. We, this is... There's going to be a lot going on this year. You have to remember to stay strong with each other. And you got to have a positive attitude, even the people who aren't positive. <sighs> Sometimes it's hard. I understand it's hard. I am not telling you something I can do very easily. My goal is to share the gospel and if necessary, use words. If you don't love them, if you're not nice to them, if you aren't kind to them, you can't share the gospel. They got to see something's different in you before they're going to listen. They got to see that life isn't throwing you for every loop. We've, in this church, we face all sorts of things. 
We've seen cancer cured. We've seen people die of cancer. We've seen hearts cured. We've seen people die. God has perfect timing. Our problem is we want to tell God what to do sometimes. We treat him like a wishing well. And that's my favorite example of prayer. You walk up to two coins of the wishing well, say, I want this, 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 thank you very much, goodbye. How about standing there and talking to him? And standing there and listening to him? Prayer is not one way, guys. Prayer is two ways. And the Bible records as a still, quiet voice. But the Bible also records there's right and wrong. And we can never, never, ever refuse to preach the wrong. But we also have to do it with love. The Bible says we have to stand with God's holy word. But you don't have to hit somebody over with a baseball bat. You know, they'll get it. They know life's terrible. And you can love them into the world. <sighs> patience, though, is not my virtue. Anybody else here have patience? When you, my mother-in-law, wonderful lady, said, don't pray for patience because God will teach you how to have patience. But right now, I think this year, we need to pray for patience. We need to pray for our workers, our co-workers, our nephews, our nieces, our children, our grandchildren. We've got to have patience for dealing with them. It's going to be a tough year. But with God's help, you can make it through it. And if you rest on your own laurels and try to make it through it on your own, you're going to fail. So, and you're going to be all upset, throwing stuff at the TV and doing all sorts of stuff you shouldn't do. Rest on God. Now, we need to close in prayer. And then there's some wonderful goodies at the coffee bar that you need to take on. If you want, there's some hymnals out there. You can grab one or two or three. If you, if you play music, you can have more than one. Tear them apart and use, put the pages wherever you need so you can have lots. Three if you want them, four if you want them. You know, help yourself. Because they were going to be gone. God's word, God's music doesn't change. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are one who does not change. Your word is trustful and true. The world wants us to bow to them. No, Father, we will not do that. We worship you. We adore you. We acknowledge you. For you are the light of the world. Your son sits here at your right hand. You blessed us with the Holy Spirit to show us how terrible the world is. Give us the wisdom to be your light. And if necessary, use words. But help us this next upcoming year to be a light to our families and friends. In your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.